everyone and welcome to The Mind Behind It. My name is Huda. And I am Sahil. I'm Rebecca Klanberger. I'm a recent graduate from the MIT Media Lab. I'm a voice expert and a research associate at MIT and I'm based in the Boston area. How did you end up studying voice? Yeah, so I arrived at the Media Lab 2012 and the Media Lab is great in, in the way that everyone can really, I mean, there's a lot of freedom uh, in what you want to study. So it's more, okay, you arrive and and you kind of have to figure it by, by yourself what you want to study. So you have to be okay with uncertainty and with making your own journey. It took me a little while, but I ended up realizing after a year that a lot of my projects were, were around the voice. So the research group I ended up in uh, when I arrived is called Opera of the Future. And my supervisor is Professor Todd McOver. So there was a lot about music and sound and audio. And I quickly got fascinated by the voice uh, for a different reason. Um, but you talk about my background, it, it, I did realize that, you know, the voice is kind of, a, if you want to understand the physics of it, just a tiny turbine engine, you know, you can use the same equations for it. It's really a, a door to, to look at a lot of different fields. You can see biology from the voice, you can see psychology, there's so many aspects of, you know, math and physics and equation in there, a bit of science, of course, you can analyze the voice, but you can really use the voice as a lens to look at the world rather than a field in itself. So that's really what I like with it. How is it that the voice is so important in that aspect? When, when thinking about somehow the genesis of my work also started from the realization that I was using my voice all the time, but had no idea how it worked and what it entailed. My own lack of understanding that really started the, the, my whole process, but even just the notion of voice and self. What does that mean to be a person? Person comes from persona, and persona was a name given to the mask that actor were wearing in ancient Rome, in antiquity. And those masks had two purposes. One of them was to portray the characters they were playing. So for example, women were not allowed to play in, in theater and drama. But the second was to be a tool to carry their voice in the atrium. So from very early on, you can think about the voice as this projection of the self and the notion of person as not just like, oh, that's who I am, but as what you project in the world. And I think that Carl Jung talks a lot about that in terms of what you project in the world doesn't have to be who you are. There is, can be this cognitive shift between who you are in the world, who you are to yourself. And I think the voice is also a great way to, to access both. But I, I think it, there's also a specific power in using technology when looking at the voice, because now we think about voice tech, oh, it's everywhere, etc. But when I try to ask myself, why am I studying voice technology? There is two story of the, the history of voice tech. I think can give an example of fundamental ways in which voice technology has shaped humanity. You know, you have to go back 30,000 BC. And researchers have discovered recently, I've done research in uh, Paleolithic painted caves. When doing research in those caves, you know, the Lascaux cave and all of those great paintings and hands on the walls. So researchers realized that our ancestors were really choosing the most resonant part of the cave for their art. So, so how did they do that? They just went through the cave with a lot of recording microphone and placed them in different parts and realized that the one with the most reverberation were the ones that had joints. And those were very often pretty deep and hidden, but not just like, they were pretty hard to access. What that might mean is that the early human, when going to those caves, in order to find the spots that they would settle down or honor with their drawings, they would travel the caves until they found the one 
that made their voice or sound that they would make certainly their voice sound more beautiful and more emphatic. And then from there, they made those drawings, they, they honored those thoughts. Even our ancestors were guided by the sound of their voice, by the experience of their voice to shape the world around them. And for mm. me, that's one of the first fundamental of what voice technology is about. It's a way to shape the world based on voice. A lot of the time I find people hate the sound of their own voice. Why do you think that is? It's absolutely a question of familiarity. Familiarity is kind of a, is deep-rooted in our behaviors and it makes us subliminally like some aspect of, of ourselves or not. And indeed, your voice is really the, the sound that you hear the most in your life. Our way of hearing ourselves, of course, are different than other people hear us. We hear ourselves both through bone conduction and uh, airborne vibration, and other people only hear us through the air. But there are many other ways in which our body filters out the sound of our own voice, or generally sound of our own body. We are in a world right now where people say, have a voice that's authentic rather than the one that's projected. So like times have kind of changed. How do you define an authentic voice and what it truly is? And is it more shaped by nature or nurture? Well, which one is your voice? Is it the one other people hear? Or is it the one you hear? Or is it the one in your head? Are all of those the same one or not? When I got started in doing research in this domain, I've read a lot and found a lot of websites and contact of voice coaches. We're going to make your voice more attractive. We're going to make your voice more authoritative. We're going to make your voice... I mean, we, we can't just dismiss that because it's true that in, in, in just a, a few decades, we see that women's voice has become, become well lower. Women change their voice immensely in the workplace, uh, much more than men. We all kind of have what I like to call vocal posture, natural vocal posture. And all the word natural is, is tricky here. His tonalities and, and fundamental frequencies that correspond to our physiology. But we, we change from that depending who we interact with. So maybe we do have an authentic voice that is different for everyone we talk to. And, and those two aspects are very important, the nature and nurture. We have some timbre and some tonality that, that are really, you know, almost imposed by our, the shape of our bones, the size of our nose. But from very young age, we learn our parents' accent. And you, you can think about it like, like a problem in physics, right? It's inverse engineering. You're a baby, and then you hear sound. And then you're going to try to reproduce them without realizing that you have to control up to 100 muscles to get the right sound. But maybe you get a sound that's close enough to A, and then your parents are like, yay, that's great. And then you kind of learn that this is the way of making the sound. It's really connected from, from an early age. But, but going back to voice coaches and changing your voice, what I wish we would stop seeing more are maybe classes, a workshop for CEOs to start fighting their own voice biases and start listening to their employees or people who they work with, with, with a more authentic way. Because the voice is never the voice in the vacuum. It's always the voice and the hear that, that, that listen to it and that perceives it. Leaders somehow have a particular voice. If you have a deeper voice, somehow you have more command. And people listen to you a lot more. Is that true? Is, has that been backed by research? Yes, yeah, there's a lot of research around that. And there is a long history of, of voice in politics. Um, and some, some great historian and researcher on the topic. Yeah, I mean, even in politics today, some politicians are very, have very strong feeling about which microphone should be used. 
for them and the exact class placement of the microphone. And of course, there are a lot of classes to, to, to adapt your voice to sound more authoritative. And that also, that's part of our voice biases. It's, it is very much learned. So it is very much social behavior. There might be a part of it that is, you know, nature or innate. But that would be interesting. What, what my work is really about is making people more aware of what's going on. Yeah. Because it's really from, from an understanding of those brain phenomenon and cultural phenomenon that we can start to do something about them. You said before that there's a difference between how we hear ourselves and the inner voice. Is that correct? What is the inner voice? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> is so, there even a good definition? Yeah, uh, so, so it'd be I, good to I, define. I call it the inward voice uh, sometimes, but, you know, how you hear yourself when you talk. It becomes more tricky when you stop looking at what's going on in the brain when you speak. Your auditory cortex is really what becomes active when you process audio, right? So what's the process of how we hear that voice, the inward voice? I was talking about all the different filters and the, mm -hmm. way, um, the way sound gets to our brain or is, is processed. And, and there are a lot of them from the medium that it goes through, whether air or bones, to arriving at uh, our inner ear and being processed by the cochlea to transform air vibration or mechanical vibration into electric signal. And those are the electric signals that are being processed in the brain. There have been studies where they've put people in MRI machine and look at their brain when they hear pre-recorded samples of their own voice versus they speak the same samples. When they speak, their auditory cortex is way less active than when they hear just the same sound but recorded. That's the idea is that when we speak, there's this kind of optimization, right? Our brain knows roughly what we're going to sound like, so we don't need to consciously listen to it or, or to, to listen to it at, at so many levels. Every motion that we do, every motor command that is sent by the brain is not just one signal sent to the brain from the brain to the muscle, but it's composed of at least two parallel signals. One is the actual signal that is sent to the, to the muscle. And the other is called the corollary discharge. And it's a parallel signal that remains in the brain to inform the brain that there will be a motion. That's why I can move my arm without looking at it. And then my brain always knows roughly the position of my body. The voice is actually a motor command and is a motor command to about 100 different muscles. We have the same activity. So those, this corollary discharge stays in the brain to just let the brain know what's going on in the muscle. So this is what's going on in my, in my lungs and in my diaphragm and, and in, in my mouth shape. And the idea is that while this is the start, this is just literally a motor command or, or you know, position uh, signal, the brain interprets it also as audio. And that's a learned behavior because we learn throughout our lives those muscle Muscle activation is correlated, it comes with audio. We have this experience of the feedback of our voice, saying that, oh, when I do this with my voice, I hear this sound. And being used to this feedback makes that you can basically have your brain hear the sound without actually producing the sound. So when you go back to this experience of the inner voice, and there are many different types of inner voice experiences, and we can talk about that later, but for example, if you read the text silently, most people report that when they read the text silently, they kind of hear it in their head. 
you, know, you often have this experience of reading an email coming from our boss, and then we hear it with our boss's voice. And what's very interesting is that when that happens, part of our auditory cortex is active. We mm. don't hear a sound, but our brain hears a sound from text, from, you know, from a thought. So we create this sound that is only in our brain and is the result of, of motor activation um, and of all of our life experience of connecting those motor control with sound and feedback. My sister used to say to me that every time you flirt, your voice changes. It just becomes really high-pitched. Is it a known thing that that happens? Like, is it to get a different outcome from someone? So what's interesting in, in what you were saying is that you were not aware of it. And there is interesting research, both in terms of, of some of those changes that we do and we're not aware of them. For example, when, when women often talk on the phone or non-men talk on the phone, uh, sometimes men too, you know, so yeah. talking off the phone is definitely, and I think one thing that's interesting with the phone is that it's, it's a completely unnatural thing. Yeah, it is. Even us right now. And that's one of the, one of the, um, an important point to keep in mind when doing voice technologies is that somehow a voice is always embodied. Our mm-hmm. brain always perceives a voice as coming from another embodied creature. There's a lot of things that can derive from that when, when, doing, when doing voice tech, when doing voice agent, when doing you know, speaker identification, or when, when trying to have conversation with AI, is that our brain always creates a model of an embodied creature when we have those interactions. Yeah. Even if now a lot of people are very used to talking to their Alexa or, or voice agent or, or, or series, in our brain, it's a much more complete process that is done than just having a vocal interaction with a voice. We always kind of create it from, from an embodiment. Can you define what that is? Like what is an embodiment? That's hard to define, but I think for me, it does go back to this motor comment is that the vo- a voice comes from some kind of muscle activation from a creature. And, and this muscle activation, we really create those models in our, in our brain of, you know, when you hear a voice, you can sometimes imagine whether a person of a bigger nose, smaller nose, the size, their gender, their gender identity, because the voice results from cascade of factors of, of different elements of what make us creature of, of, of flesh and, and blood and hormones and, and saliva, when we hear a voice, we subconsciously recreate that and, and create beliefs or, or, or models of what they can be. And I think hormone level is, is a good one. It's interesting because it's also very present in animals and I've mainly done research on giant pandas at the San Diego Zoo in terms of, of hormone levels. But it's the same, but the, the, there are some similarities let's say, with humans. And I think yeah. uh, an interesting one is um, so, some research from, from quite a while ago already is that, um, where they asked men to listen to, to voice samples from women that were recorded, um, that they were saying the same exact word, but they were recorded at different types of the menstrual cycle. Oh. Um, and asking the men to rate those samples by attractiveness. Wow. And systematically, those ratings matched the estrogen and progesterone levels. That is crazy. So where, yeah. So this connection of voice 
attractiveness and how you project to others and yeah. how that relates to the fact that we have a body. And, yeah. and the voice is actually a very efficient way to give information about, you know, mate potential. So I start my first job was at a bank and it was at a call center. And, you know, looking back at that experience, every single time someone of the opposite gender had a, a specific voice type, even if I didn't know what they looked like, who they were, nothing other than just a name on the screen and their bank details, I would just automatically, depending on their voice, I would feel a certain way towards them. So like, and so do you think that that is a learned thing or is it just an innately built thing? It's a good question. Uh, it, it is also a slightly tricky one. You know, they have great research on babies and faces. And I think that's a good clue to think about also what in our voice perception is in it or, or learn. Babies, very young babies, are much better than adults at recognizing faces of people from other ethnicities because they haven't yet focused on their own ethnicities. That only happened at a few months or... And babies are actually also much better at recognizing monkey faces. Mm. So she gives them images of, of different, of, um, of one species, but different individual monkeys, they uh, can identify which ones they've seen before, which ones they haven't, which ones are familiar, which ones they aren't. And, and adults, are, most adults are completely incapable of doing that. Oh, wow. So the notion of being learned, it's really, it's not just, oh, society tells us something, but it's, it's, it's a big part of it. But there is also the part of just the natural development of the brain that learns things a certain way, that, that prunes, you know, the brain. From, from infinite connection to what is useful for me right now, for my survival. One of the key things to survival is living with the voice in your head. I mean, that's the new age of social media and self-help is all about dealing with your inner thoughts. You know, when you listen to thoughts, is that just a voice or is that just the ideas that, that the body is soaking? What's the difference there? Now, that's a great question. And that's also why I, I love to think of the inner voice as a missing link between thoughts and action. Thoughts don't have to be verbalized, don't have to be in human languages. They can be either much more visceral, they can be um, visual thoughts, they can be, you know, other senses. And they, even if they are, um, Auditory thoughts, they don't have to be verbal. A lot of people report having verbal thoughts, and even that is interesting. How to deal with, with it in a voice? And I think here there are some pretty great research, especially in terms of that they're really clustering in the population of people who find proactive interaction with their inner voice, or you can call that inner dialogue, to be a useful tool, a useful approach for their own mental health and well-being. So kind of engaging in those inner dialogues. And other people, uh, it's very counterproductive. Some people go into loops. Some people can maybe have very um, destructive inner voice. And so there is some pretty great research in terms of, you know, understanding where you fall in that spectrum and what are the right ways of interacting with this, with, with your inner, inner voice. You know, even if you have inner thoughts that are verbalized, they are generally verbalized from a sound, it starts from a sound. It doesn't start from the word. It's really your ability to produce sound that 
give us language and that also give us the inner voice. And that's almost kind of two, two branching of the same of the same idea. So I think there's, there's a lot of, of ways that, that everyone can understand that. You know, I, I like to ask people, can you think of the voice of your mother or, or father or caregiver calling you down, calling you to come for dinner at the table, right? Um, and you can try to imagine, you know, Bézay speaking at normal volume or not. Can you remember the melody? You remember, of course, the word they were saying, but there's much more than the word that were being said, and that can trigger really nostalgic feeling for some people. This inner voice is not only your own voice, but it can be any kind of voice, existing or non-existing. But I'm always curious to know, especially people who have schizophrenia, and they say, you know, they hear voices. People even with OCD who hear that voice, they're like, mm -hmm. do it, do it, do it, do it. Mm -hmm. How do you, knowing the knowledge that you have, how can it possibly help you know, in those fields or in those areas? Yeah, and again, the, the explanation, the process that I was mentioning before of the coronary discharge, this, this seemed to hold in a lot of application and situation. That might not be the entire story, you know, of, of how, what happened in the brain, but I think it's a good uh, initial model to look at those different types of experiences. And schizophrenia is very interesting, um, but and, and there's, so there is known variation in the brain of people who have schizophrenia, but it's also true that there is a, a strong cultural aspect of mm. this. Uh, there is uh, very interesting studies from a few years ago that shows that voices in your head, even people who have very strong, what we could call the literary hallucination, um, are, are seen very differently in different cultures. And in the Western world, they're often seen as negative, trying to force you to do things. Uh, but in other cultures, they're seen as inner friends. Some of those experiences and some of those variation culturally can also give us clues of, of how it might be like for our ancestors not that long ago. So the notion of, of reading an inner voice is, is pretty interesting, this fact that when, when you read, you basically activate some of those coronary discharge and, and hear a voice in your head. But there are some um, hypotheses, some, some theories that are very controversial, that it's actually only very recently that we had the kind of inner voices or, or, or understanding or, or acknowledging of, of, of voices or inner voice. Or at least it might have to be a very different experience just like a few hundred years ago. And, and there are two, two clues, two indications for that, that, that people base themselves. One of them is based on the fact that maybe people couldn't read silently only a few hundred years ago. The two clues for that is that it was known that for a long time, people were scripts, were reading out loud. And it was actually almost seen as impolite to not read for the whole room. So it was really, reading was really a, a social activity from some of St. Augustine's uh, writings that we have those clues. And the other one comes from the fact that also a few hundred thousand years ago, uh, most written texts were written in what we call scripta continua, meaning that there was no space in between the words. So now we have a word, we have a space, we have a word, we have a space. In, in some culture, at some point, there was no space between words. And the Ooh. only way you could actually make sense of what was written was to read it out loud. Because Ooh. reading out loud was what was creating uh, the dynamics. So those are, are some cues about, well, maybe people didn't use to read silently. And another one that 
they're not used to return to meetings and we're not capable of reading silently. Because another thing that's often cited is the fact that not that long ago, there were way more often reports of people hearing the voice of God. Hmm. There are some hypotheses that say that people reported hearing God because they were actually hearing a voice, but maybe it was just a voice in their head and they were so unused to that voice. Yeah, it's the one where you said that we make up the voice in our heads and we don't realize we're doing it. Yeah, so inner voice experiences, whether they are just rehearsing for a talk, uh, reading silently, having a song stuck in your head, any of those kind of auditory inner experiences uh, could be called inner voices. And, and sometimes you hear a voice that sounds like yours, sometimes you hear a voice that doesn't sound like yours. And you can imagine that if you've never had an experience like that of inner voice and suddenly you have one, and maybe explanation that seems almost logical that it comes from above or it comes from from another source. You said that you can tell in a relationship based on the voice of when it's going to end or when it's going to divorce. How? But those have to do with the fact that when talking to a spouse, when talking to someone you're in a relationship with, there are of course verbal cues and non-verbal cues. And in the non-verbal cues, you have you know, body gesture and, and facial expression and the way turn-taking happens. So to what extent one person talks more than the other, to what extent someone is cutting the other person uh, or there are silences. And some of those cues, in addition from temporal elements of the voice or, or dynamic or, or speed or volume, some of those cues have been studied extensively in terms of, of relationship. And that is also related to some some great research on divorce and the fact that there are actually, so some of those research are a bit old, so things might have changed. I think things change in every generation, but it is classic that when people are married, um, there are two different times in the marriage where divorce is the most likely to happen. One is, I think, about three years after getting married. It's like maybe before having kids or when the kids are very young. And, and the other one might be a lot later, 15 years, yeah, uh, a bit later. So, so it's known that you have those those peak of probability of divorce, and and the idea that some of those vocal non-verbal cues are linked to the probability of divorce, but also the type of divorce that might occur. Is it going to be an early divorce or a late divorce? Wow. Maybe, you know? So, so this is what my simplification in the talk was about. So, so there is those mapping and connection that can be done. You know, when we're communicating, especially like via technology, right, social media and texting and all that sort of stuff, when we're texting, it's not always everything that we say. And a lot of it has to be, you know, reserved. Is there a relationship there? Like like how much we communicate via a social medium? There's some research of quantity of information that that, that is conveyed by words alone or vocal nonverbal elements and everything else like body language. And yeah. again, there's a lot of controversy about how those numbers are obtained, but there is really this idea that anything that can be translated into text is, is only a small part of the way we convey messages. And, and text and is a tricky one because it's, it has been with us for a long time, right? People have been yeah. writing some letters to each other for a very long time. So I, I think it's, it's a different way of conveying things. And it, it, the other great advantage of text is that, I mean, maybe not modern way of texting, but that it really gives a different perspective of time. You have the time to think yeah. about your words and, and 
to think them through and to rethink them. I often use uh, the example of drunk voice to explain the difficulty of, of using machine learning or technology to, to detect or to understand the voice. Right now, there, there are a lot of researchers that do some great work into, okay, can you detect if a voice is, can you detect mental health from the voice? Or how do you exactly detect Parkinson? Or how do you do some of those things? And, you know, of course, a, a common approach is you put everything in a black box and then you put a lot of data and you see what comes out uh, afterward. I think there is one fundamental flaw with this approach. And I've been talking with a few people in, in those big companies about, you know, why and we can talk about that later. But, but one thing that's important is just if we try to understand what happened. I mean, we, we all have a, a mental image of what someone sounds like when they're drunk, right? We can often detect it. But what, what actually happened? Well, there's a lot of things that happen. And, and those elements are really hard to, to, again, deconstruct from each other. Well, the first one is time, timing. And there's some great research that has been done on rats around timing and, and different drugs and alcohol. So they've, they've given some rats some um, uh, THC or cocaine or alcohol to see how their uh, perception of time would change. So they first they trained those rats to press a button at the exact tempo to oh. get a treat. And rats became really good at doing that. Then they gave some of the rats THC, some of the rats cocaine, some of the rats alcohol. And so, you know, can they still do the exercise? And the result is exactly what you would expect, right? I found cocaine were much faster. <laughs> pressing the button. Rat on weed were much slower pressing the button. And, and rat on alcohol were also slower. So there is a, a, a change in, in time, but this time is not just slower tempo, it's also, it also slurs. So, so slurred voice is a voice where you know, you're trying to control all those different muscles, but, but you don't do it as virtuosically yeah. as you generally do it because it's, it's a real virtuoso job that we all do every day to control those muscles. So, so you have the time elements, you have the slurring elements. Well, you also have the fact that your, your voice box is more dry. And that's kind of, you know, to what extent the different tissues, the different elements and blocks in your mouth are are lubricated the right way or not, that affects a lot the timbre of your voice. And, and also your ability to make specific sounds, so specific consonants are going to sound different. And, and when you're drunk, you know, alcohol has a way of drying the, the mucosis, so you're going to sound differently because of all of that. So it's really the mix of all those different elements that is making the result of a drunk voice. That's why it's really hard to pinpoint only one element. Do you think that with stuttering, when they try to hide it, it actually doesn't work? Because I find that people that try to hide the stutter, or if they're more stressed in their life, they tend to stutter more. Oh, so stuttering is a, is a huge topic that we talk about for, for a very long time. And I started by, I was working on some technologies at the lab of different ways of making people aware of the musicality of their everyday speech in real time. And then I randomly met a neurologist himself a person who stutter, who tried some of my technologies and said, hey, that could be really life-changing for people who stutter. And we, and we became good friends and collaborators and we embarked on this journey of, of building technologies to help people stutter. The first thing I did was try to understand that because I had never really been aware or learned about stuttering before. Yeah. So one of the first things I did was to go participate in the 
NSA, National Stuttering Association convention. Yeah. I was in Chicago at the time. And then there were 1,000 people who attended and 900 of them were people who stuttered. And that was really a life-changing experience for me because suddenly I was a minority and I was worried of disappointing people if I started talking without stuttering. So that got me to have a different perspective on the experience of people who stutter and just generally trying to become a better ally for people who stutter. So sometimes it's not about speaking fluently. It's just about better, more efficient communication. And again, that can come from people learning techniques to sound fluent, to speak faster, but also it can come from the conversational partner to learn to be a better listener and listen more actively to what people stutter uh, have to say. So doing a lot of work in this in this domain right now. We're working on an app where it's, it's a super interesting topic and we hope we're trying to work with people who stutter to get really their point and their experience and, and their opinion on, on what we're making. So it's not about fixing stutter, not about fixing stutter, but really about helping people stutter. Why do people stutter? Is there, do you, is there, what's in the brain that makes... It is, it is still a very mysterious condition. It's, uh, we know it's a mix between genetic, environmental, and um, neurological factors. So when you look at the brain of adults who stutter, it has different um, white matter organization than people who do not stutter, especially in the left hemisphere. But, but there's also an important genetic uh, condition. So someone in your family stutter, you have a high chance of stuttering. Mm. And as you said, stutter highly depends on stress and, and condition and the kind of words you say. Um, so that, that's, that's pretty interesting. I also got really interested in, in thinking about stutter in light of my work on inner voice. If you stutter, then in your brain, do you stutter? Like, like when you're talking to yourself, would you be stuttering? So we've done studies and we've done research on that. And, and most people report never stuttering with their inner voice and never stuttering in their dreams. Wow. Um, and it's, it's interesting. People stutter most often never stutter when they sing, don't stutter when they play in theater. So there are a lot of very famous singers and, and actors who stutter. Uh, Marilyn Monroe is one of my favorite examples of some of a, you know, a, a, a person who stutter a lot in her life, but never stuttered when they... Is it because it's also rehearsed? Is it because, you know, when you've read the lines on a script, oh, it's rehearsed that, and you... There are, a lot of, there are a lot of different ways to, to think about it. The rehearsal could be one. In the case of Marilyn Monroe, she actually had a voice coach that uh, told her a trick that has helped her a lot in her life that told her, well, one way to avoid stuttering is to always whisper your way into words and sentences. And so we kind of think that that's why Marilyn Monroe's voice was so recognizable because she had this way to whisper and start sentences in a specific way that, that might be from trying to not stutter. A lot of younger people, there's a whole movement um, of people who say that they don't want to use techniques anymore because techniques rarely become fully natural and require a lot of cognitive effort. So you have to constantly think of using your technique to appear fluent. So that's yeah. why sometimes we call them covert uh, because they don't stutter freely. And your question about rehearsing or, or why maybe when you uh, play in a, sh in a show or in theater or singing, well, that goes back to another thing we talked about earlier, which is it seems, and that's the point that I'm, I'm studying right now, I'm really interested in, that 
you, you know, you have a different voice when you talk to different people, but you might also have a different voice when you step out of yourself. Uh, and I, I don't like to use the word genuine for that because it's not about, you know, being honest or not, but it's about, you know, my, my collaborators that I was mentioning, uh, Mike Erkinen, as a great way to demonstrate that as a person who stutter, that he often says, hi, my name is M, M, M. I can never say Mike, M, M, M. So as soon as he step out of himself <sighs> and somehow becomes a character, then the word comes. So this notion of what I call performativity of the voice. Wow. It's pretty fundamental in might it seem that it might actually activate a different um, neural pathway than less performative voice. So it might really be a different voice in the brain. And that's also why I think should be really taken into account when writing models, you know, uh, um, when, when trying to detect things from the voice. Because if you use samples or, or database from people reading a text or from people on TV or from people, it's not the same as if you get a more genuine or, or natural or everyday voice. You know, if you read a text or if you, if you try to be someone or to appear someone, or again, if we go back to a mask from a persona, if you project the persona of who you are, it's a different pathway, it's a different voice. It, wow. it, might, have different, it might have different cues. It's if you flirt, you, pro- you try to project something, mm. you try to be a person, and, and the, what you reveal of yourself through that is different. You might still reveal some vulnerability. You might reveal some strengths. You might reveal some hormone elements. But this is somehow a different persona. You did mention active listening. And I think it's something that a lot of this generation struggles with because we have such low attention spans. How would you say we actively listen? Oh, that's, that was a, another important humility lesson for me from working on the voice when I started working with people who stutter. Because there is a common important politeness rule when, interact, when talking to someone who stutter is to not interrupt them or to not yeah. try to finish their word. So I, I learned that and I learned to not, not do that for a while. And people came for my studies or interviews or, or middle friends who stutter now. I would still unconsciously finish the sentences in my head yeah 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 so someone would talk and i would not cut them but i would be like yeah i don't know say that mm-hmm. then i realized that most of the time i was wrong so i was kind of predicting thinking yeah i know what you're going to say um accelerating what's going on but I, I was wrong and i was really not listening actively i was not being a good listener and that that lesson now i really try to apply it in in many aspects of my life when i when I talk to people to try to not be in my own little loop of, oh, what am I going to say after? But mm. to truly pause and take the time to be with the person. Yeah, because then you're really paying attention as well. Because if you don't think you know what they're going to say, you're actively engaging. And yeah, and here we also come back to, to some pitfalls of voice technology is that it's a notion of prediction. You know, how AI is all about prediction. And you might have experienced that when, when writing emails, right? You write an email and suddenly it, it, it predicts what the yeah. next word is going to be. And you're like, that's great. Maybe I wanted to say that. Maybe I don't know. But now that you propose it, I'm not sure anymore. Yeah. And I feel like I have less agency <laughs> on what I'm going to say. And I think there's a big part of that also in how 
voice technology is 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 thinking of of predictive models um, of can we actually predict exactly as you say you know when I write I can pause I can decide I can change but the voice there is this infinite you know potential <laughs> at yeah. every moment. Am I going to say a word? Am I going to start screaming? Am I going to say weird sound or sing mm. a song? There's always this potential. Um, unfortunately, there's a lot of, um, you know, what's socially acceptable. But I think, I think some of those rules should be removed and we should be able to make weird sounds more often. But mm. in terms of predictive listening and use of technology for the voice, what would that mean to create a voice AI that's active listening? Actively listening to people, but in, in, in a good way. Hmm. Yeah, and that's kind of the struggle with modern day AI is AI is good at logic and reasoning, but AI is not that great at emotion, which is what makes us, you know, which is why it's hard to predict what someone's going to say. Yeah, predicting emotion. I mean, again, emotion is a tricky word, but this notion of intent hmm. and uh, this notion of, um, it, you know, I, uh, at some point I, I said, okay, I really need to, to learn um, the rules of, of dialogues and, and turn-taking. There's a lot of very interesting things happening in turn-taking. What is turn-taking? When you say turn-taking, is this when you wait for someone to finish or...? Well, the dance that we've been doing for, for, for an hour of, of listening to each other, then um, answering, then yeah. asking questions, is something that, that most humans are pretty good at. And it's actually... We, we, it's another thing we don't think about, but, but it requires a lot of very tricky synchronization. And one of them that I like is the fact that when you talk to someone pretty often, your breathing synchronizes. Oh, yeah. Subconsciously. You don't think about it. But, and, and it's actually the case also if you watch someone giving a talk on TV. Your breathing synchronizes with them. Your breathing yeah. actually inverse synchronizes. And, and one of the ideas there is that it's so that you're always ready to start a sentence when they end the sentence. Oh. So as soon as someone is finished with their breath, literally, with a word, with their ability to form a sentence, you're already ready. You don't need to inhale and speak. You're already ready to, wow. to, to say something. So, so this is just one example of, of those elements of turn-taking uh, that's totally subconscious. Another one is a lot of those filler words, you know, just said, wow, hmm. those are very specific psychological signals that tell me, well, I can continue speaking. You're not trying to say something. You're just kind of validating or unvalidating what I'm saying, uh, but I'm still kind of the main person speaking right now. <laughs> so um, <laughs> that's kind of what I mean by, by turn-taking. There's a lot of subconscious thing happening when you think you're just having a regular chat uh, with someone. And there's a lot to be then said about people that interrupt as well, then, isn't it? That, that does bring to, you know, those are tricky words that you were talking about, emotion, and that also brings to some, some aspect of empathy. Because when, when you talk to someone who is having a lot of emotion, one aspect, one, one common way is to empathize with them and maybe match some of your vocal posture, vocal elements to that person. So, so we do it naturally, for example, volume. You're not going to you know, scream if someone's speaking um, very softly. Uh, dynamic accent um, and timbre. Um, but sometimes, you know, if someone is sad, you will empathize, so your voice will also sound sad. But in other way, you will inverse mirror them. So if someone is sad and you're trying to energize them or, or to you know, distract them, then you might inverse mirror their vocal behavior 
So sometimes empathy or, you know, correct social uh, norm mean that you're going to have a congruent versus an incongruent series of focal parameters. And that's one that has a lot of power, uh, a lot of potential in human interaction. And that's one way to think about empathy. But that's, that's also kind of interesting to think about in terms of the future of voice technology. Because all of those voice AI, are they going to be able to do that? Are they already doing that in a certain way and we're not aware of it? And what is their intent when doing that? So, so as human, I, I do believe that most of our vocal interaction um, are not about exchanging verbal information. Right? Most of what we say in a regular day have nothing to do with our immediate survival. So the reason, the evolutionary reason why we talk to each other might have to be found somewhere else. And I, I do believe that in a way it's a bit provocative, but words are just an excuse to have vocal exchanges. What matters more, it's not to say things, but mm -hmm. it's to have the conversation and to interact as humans through vocal sound. And, and words are just an excuse there. You know, I think what is so important about your work is the fact that there is way too much that we take for granted almost when we speak. And I think like nowadays, especially, I think we're starting to kind of really address the importance of that, I guess, overall. But we don't realize how much of a, I guess, how important voice is in all of this. That's what my whole yeah. <laughs> work in life is about. I know. Um, of bringing some, some importance to this such a familiar and everyday thing. But how can we truly cherish, understand it, understand its application, implication, and, and how a better understanding might help us have better human interaction, better relationship with others, and better relationship with ourselves? There is so much more that you do. The other one is about the importance of working on animal-human relationships. So I grew up surrounded by animals. That's always been a, a very dear topic for me to, to think about animal um, and, and interspecies interaction. You know, earlier we were talking about how inner voice doesn't have to be inner words. There are other ways to have a rich inner life that is based on sound, but that's not only based on um, based on words and, and I think that's kind of an interesting segue to an interesting door to think about animal inner life why would we be the only one to have an inner life you know, what gives us the permission to think we are so unique and, and I think my work of trying to, to show the importance of voice somehow over language or over words mm -hmm. um, or, or at least in, in parallel um, is also based on the fact that language has been defined, always been defined as a way to separate, to create a wall. Um, Absolutely. For a very long time, language was the Western world language. A clique language is not a language, so you're not a human. Such and such language, oh, those are, you know, those are not elevated language, so you're not human. And I think in, a, in some way, we're still doing that with animals. Now people are, like, are trying to, to, to give credit to bees and whales and 
but why continuing to use this, this barrier between those who are worth having a language and those who are not? And somehow bringing more, remembering that sound is maybe more important for us being human than words yeah. is also yeah. a way to bring back some importance to animal voices. It's, it's kind of amazing that, that as humans, we have so many similarities with how other species communicate and even birds who are so different from us, who have such a completely different voice box, don't have larynx, it works completely differently, but still make sound. And they yeah. still can reproduce very similar sound we make. In a way, my work on the inner voice is also a way to, to bridge a gap here yeah. between human inner lives and, and animal inner lives. I find that a lot of the time, because English somehow became, you know, the universal language that everybody should know, you know, we often find that if we don't understand someone, we perceive them as less intelligent than us. Is that, is that just me or is it a thing? We understand them. Okay. If we want to understand them. If you're in a plane and hear a couple fight in a completely different language, you understand they're fighting. Yes. Do you need to understand every single word? No. Mm. You understand the intent. You understand what's going on in the, in the human interaction. But what you say about the English language is interesting, and here we might have a, a way to, to loop the loop, is that not that long ago it was not English. The language that was spoken. Yeah. It was French. Hmm. It was French. French was the language of the elite, the language spoken everywhere. And there's lots of great traces of that in the English language. We don't have time to go too much in depth about yeah. that, but why is it so much part of French culture to you know, have a specific attitude about people speaking French or not. It's because, same thing, the, the trap of language that is about making a wall. Creating languages is a way to mask the fact that what matters is not the language, it's the fact that we can all make sound with our mouth. Language has this great power of connecting us, but also of, of creating disconnections. Yes because we don't understand them and what they're trying to say in a way, in a way of language, we tend to think that they're less intelligent or less whatever than us. I've been helping out with the organization of some uh, interspecies internet conferences uh, those past few years. And some people say, oh, I want someone to invent technologies so I can talk to a cow. Mm-hmm. Or I, can, I want to be able to talk with animals. I want to translate animal languages. There is something really profound and really human in terms of wanting to build tools and build tools to create those connections. But as someone who grew up in a farm, I can tell them if you want to have a conversation with a cow, you go in the field and yeah. you have a conversation with exactly. a cow. Exactly. Yeah. But maybe before that, what makes you think the cow wants to talk to you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. What's your intent? Are you just there to be your little powerful human being who yeah. demonstrate that we know how to make things or are you there to truly have a conversation yeah so it's not our, our, our own intent our own ability to listen and and taking the time it's mm. remarkable that you say that because we think that the only way of communicating is through language which is our biggest pitfall 
If anything, that has caused more wars than anything else. Just shift the conversation, shift the paradigm to something different. Mm. If we if if we think about our ability to listen and to imitate and to reproduce and to create a connection over imposing our opinion. Yeah, and I love watching humans and the sounds they make when they talk to their dogs or their cats. I find that so interesting. Suddenly it like changes and like, oh, new, new, new. And I'm always Don't like... Don't get me started on animal-directed speech. That's an other area of my research that I'm really interested in. Animal-directed speech, how that relate to infant-directed speech and how that can inform uh, machine-directed speech. We were talking about performativity earlier, but that's also a different voice when we talk to an entity that we think more as a baby or as yeah. less intelligent than us, then all of our vocal parameters change again. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Like the way we change our tone. Like to me, it's about tone, right? Because that's, to me, that's what I hear. I know there's more to it, but, you know, we do change our tone. We change the way we speak to animals or babies or whatever it might be. Yeah, it's called Mozarese. And you can also think about it as animal-directed speech, infant-directed speech, children-directed speech, robot-directed speech. Um, wow. And there's a lot of other senses that animals have that we don't have, like the mm. sen- their sense of smell and, you know, hearing. It's, mm-hmm. it's way superior to us. And we can't communicate like that, but they can. You know what I actually wanted to ask? I always think, how do they understand each other? Like, is it through noise or do they have their own language? What is understanding? Do we ever understand each other? No. No. <laughs> it's, it's about connection. It's about living together. It's about interaction. Yeah, I, I think in, uh, we humans are obsessed with understanding. Like, we just want to understand. We need to get to the solution. Yeah, it's it's all that brain which is like instant gratification, <laughs> knowing right now, I want to know what they're thinking. Like, we come back and we look at our pets and we're like, what are you thinking? Nothing. Your cat's thinking nothing. And, and, and in many ways, I find it so interesting that, you know, when I go back home, my cat's just looking at the same thing it was looking at three hours ago. <laughs> and it never gets bored. Animals in our life are definitely there, but require a different type of investment to get to know. And I, I think that's one that to, to have an understanding of your cat, you need to create a relationship with your cat. You need to create a context such that your cat has interest and wants to interact with you and, and to transmit those information. Mm. And a lot of animals have become really good at, at hiding how they feel, what they think, because if not, they'll be eaten. I know. Um, yeah. You get taught that they're lesser than you. They don't feel, they don't, whatever. You know, you just, you have this concept implanted in your head. There's no difference. And we have this thing where we create difference between them. Now I just observe them as an entire entity on its own that is just so much more unique. But thank you so much for coming on and having this conversation. I've learned so much today. And thank you for your area of research. I think it's very valuable and very important for people to, you know, start understanding the importance of sounds and voice in general and how to navigate that slightly better than we do right now. Thank you so much for exploring me. That was was super fun talking with you. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for coming. (laughs) 